Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole. Thanks for tuning in. Don't. It's a command I give to my kids regularly. Don't put your elbows on the table. Don't fight with your brother. Don't eat a snack right before dinner. I didn't fully appreciate how simple the actions and questions that led to the response don't used to be relative to how complicated they've been getting already. And my kids are only nine, eight, and six as I record this. Don't get into a car with someone you don't know, even if they claim to have a puppy. Don't ever take a pill that someone gives you if it's not mom, dad, or the school nurse. One thing I've noticed as their understanding of the world builds, their questions become increasingly complicated, and the stakes get quite a lot higher, is that I need to do more than simply direct against an action. It's not super compelling. It works much better, we have honest conversations, and I know that the lessons sink in when I'm patient and take the time to explain why they shouldn't do something, what could go wrong, and offer alternatives of what they might do instead. There are also situations I encounter and questions posed from the world of visualizing and communicating with data that could be responded to with the simple command, don't. Today, I'll share a handful of those, also taking the time to explain why and suggest what to do instead. We'll start with two graph-related questions that I've been asked recently and move from there into queries related to slides, presentations, and feedback. First up, when should I break the axis on a graph? Don't. <laughs> I'm talking about when a section of the axis, typically it's the y-axis, has been removed. Often there's a zigzag shape at this part of the axis that's meant to call attention to the fact that a chunk of it has been omitted. I see this happen most frequently with bar charts, and often when one or a couple of the bars are much larger than the rest. This means that if you displayed the full axis to accommodate the large categories, it would either make the others look very small or just such that you can't see differences between them. Now, the reason that you shouldn't do this stems back to how we read bar charts. When we're looking at bars, what our eyes are doing are really comparing the ends of those bars to the baseline and to each other. And it's that alignment to a consistent baseline that allows us to do this with great ease. So we can see which category is the biggest, which is the smallest, and also incremental differences between categories. I had a recent encounter with a gentleman who challenged me on this. He said, no, I've put a zigzag there. This is not an issue. I've drawn attention to the fact that the axis is omitted, so people are going to understand that they're meant to take that into account when they're interpreting the information. I politely but strongly disagree with that idea. This brought to mind for me an illusion that I saw recently in a video that I was watching that I've, I've seen several times before. And it's a drawing of two tables side by side where one is rectangular and the length is or the depth is much greater than the width. The other one is a square table. And you're typically asked to say which table is longer. 
And so the one on the left, the one that's longer versus wide, looks much longer. But when you draw lines on it, it actually shows that the tables are the same length as one another. But even after this illusion is pointed out, the table on the left still looks longer. And bringing this back to this specific instance, the same idea, I think, holds here, where even if we've given a visual cue that we've taken out part of the axis, the tendency is still to want to compare the heights of various bars in a given graph. So I don't think that that is a reasonable (laughs) dispute to this. So the question then is, what do we do instead? offer a couple alternatives that I've seen and used. One was an example from several years ago. I saw it scrolling through Twitter. It was from the Department of Transportation. I forget exactly what it was plotting, maybe like spending on roads or something like that. In this case, it was horizontal bars. And the magnitudes were very different across the different states. And rather than put it all into one graph, they broke things into different graphs. They had the top five states, you know, California, New York, I forget the others. And then in a separate graph with a separate title and a separate axis, the remaining states. So you still run the risk of people, I think, trying to compare bar lengths across the two graphs. However, the spatial separation, clear titles, and the prominent axes and labels can help with this. As another example, when you have one category that dwarfs the rest. For example, I can remember I was working with a pharmaceutical company one time and doing a makeover, and it was their advertising spend breakdown. And I think it was TV had the most advertising spend by a great margin. And then the other categories were things like print, online, direct mail, and so forth. And so you can do a couple of things there. One is just to break TV spend out of the graph entirely and maybe just put a numerical value on it. TV spend makes up X million dollars or makes up 80% of our advertising spend. Another thing you could do is actually start with everything in the same graph where you see TV, you see the bar there, and it dwarfs all the other categories. And then you move from there into another view that takes TV off, resets the scale, so now that you can evaluate the other categories. It really comes back to what you need people to know, what you need them to be able to do with or see in the data. These certainly aren't the only alternatives, but some ideas to get you thinking. Let's shift to a question that came up at a workshop recently. How do I use a box plot with an unfamiliar audience? Don't. First, I'll describe what a box plot is. It's also known as box and whiskers, and that's due to the shape. It's a way to visually encode a distribution of data. So imagine that you have a rectangle. It's taller, typically, than it is wide. This is the box. It'll have a line or a dot prominently somewhere within it. And then it has a line extending vertically upwards and another line extending vertically downwards. The top of that line extending up, that's the whisker, is the maximum value in the data set. The bottom of the line that's extending downwards is the minimum. And sometimes you'll even see dots or symbols outside of these, which would denote outliers. 
And then if you imagine the rectangle that's in the middle, the top of the rectangle is typically something like the 75th percentile, in which case the bottom of the rectangle would be the 25th percentile. And then that dot or line within the rectangle is the median. And Typically, there's not just one of these box and whisker plots. There are more than one, several, perhaps. And this is so you can compare distributions across different samples or data sets. So I'll just pause there and comment on how long it just took me to explain that to you. Obviously, that gets a little bit simpler when you have the depiction there and can just point to things versus trying to describe it all. But that's a lot to try to understand and comprehend and then use to make sense of and compare. So when I responded to this question in the workshop, I made the joke, if you're a statistician and you are communicating to your colleagues who are also statisticians, box plots, totally fine. They're used to seeing these, understand what they're meant to do, how they're meant to compare them to each other. If you're communicating to anyone else on the planet, however, don't use a box plot. Instead, turn the point that you want to make into words, and then consider in light of that how much detail you need to give to your audience. So in most cases, central limit theorem is going to come into play, meaning the distributions are normal, and either a similarity or difference between them is significant, in which case you can call it out directly without the need for all of those summary statistics, or it isn't. And then you should perhaps question whether to communicate it at all. I'll just mention that we have a YouTube video that talks about this as well. So if you'd rather watch uh, than listen to the description here, or if that'll be helpful, we'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. Next, let's come to a question that goes beyond the graphs to slides. How should I present a slide of bulleted text? Don't. Let's picture this first. So imagine you have a slide that has, I don't know, eight or 10 bullets down the side. Each of those is followed by a full sentence or two, a slide full of words. You've certainly sat in the audience at some point or another and encountered a slide like this and probably been a little frustrated or annoyed. And I can understand why people create slides like this. Get all of the detail down so that you don't forget anything and can remember what order you want to go through them and all of the details. The problem is really when we're creating something that looks like that, it's for ourselves, not for our audience. Where this can work is if it's a standalone, something that you are putting together that's going to be sent out and your audience is going to consume it on their own. So in that case, you're not there to lend context. So those words really do need to be written down on the slide. In a live setting, however, that works against you. One of a couple of things typically happens. Either your audience sees the slide, gets overwhelmed, turns their attention to something else, or they start reading. And when they're reading, they can't simultaneously listen to you. And then when they get done reading and do turn their attention back to you, you're likely several bullet points back. And that's because people can read in their heads much faster than you can read out loud. And so they get done scanning, turn their attention back to you, you're still back on something else. And so now they tune out. Notice in all of these cases, we've lost our audience's attention for the 
words that we're saying, which should be the important part. So instead of this sort of teleprompter slide, you can simplify. So still use it as your teleprompter, but instead of full sentences, maybe you just have a short pithy phrase, a couple of words that will remind you of the next topic or the details that you're afraid that you're going to forget in a punchy, short way. And then you can animate them to show up one at a time, which has a benefit for you, both in terms of keeping you on track and so that you don't forget something that you wanted to make sure that you say. And also for your audience, because they can quickly scan if it's just a couple of words and then tune in to you where you're hopefully then sharing more context, more details to make that rich and robust. So you can think of the original bullet points that were multi-sentences. Those become your speaking notes in a shorter, pithier presentation. As another alternative, you can actually just break ideas into each of those bullets into separate slides. Now, in some instances, this will be overkill, but there are others where it can work quite well. And I'll just point your attention to another YouTube video we have called Transform the Teleprompter, where you can see both of these strategies employed with a specific example. I'll make sure we link to that in our show notes. Another presentation-related question next. How do I create a deck that works both to present live and send around as a standalone? Don't. <laughs> this gives rise to uh, something called the slidement, uh, part slide, part document, not exactly meeting the needs of either of those scenarios. Typically, it's going to be much too dense to present in a live setting, and sometimes still not dense enough for someone to consume on their own. So in this case, I'd recommend breaking the communication into two separate communications. And you can follow different strategies for each of those. In a live setting, you can animate to build your graph piece by piece and often start even before showing the data with just the skeleton of the graph, the bones, right? the y-axis, the x-axis, the axis labels, and the titles. This allows you to walk your audience through what you're going to be showing without running the risk of them jumping into the data and not listening to you because you aren't yet showing them the data. And then you can imagine building your graph piece by piece. If it's something over time, you might start with a dot way back in time when, let's say, your product was introduced. And then you can build that over time and lend the important context or what was happening in the environment that had an impact as you go. And just going back to what we talked about with the teleprompter slide transformation, really the idea here is building slides that are going to support you as you're presenting live to not be a crutch, but rather a useful assistant, because really you want the primary attention on you when you're the one presenting and your slides become just something you're able to refer to when you need visual reinforcement of a concept, an idea, or you're showing data.
In the case of the standalone, you want to annotate directly. And when we see the slideman, often what happens is there's a graph or maybe a couple of graphs, and then separate from that are often bulleted words describing things that are going on within the data. And so anytime you show words and data together, you want to visually connect those for your audience so that they don't have to work to try to figure out which words describe which data or where should I be looking in the data when I read the different takeaways. Do that work for them. You can do that in a number of different ways. You can think about if you're using color as a way to tie things, you might make the words that describe a certain category of data or a certain data point the same color as that. You can connect the words to the data physically by drawing a line between them. Also, oftentimes there is the potential to put the words very close to the data that it's describing, uh, so long as you can do so without obscuring the ability to read the information or to understand what's going on in the graph. So just think about when you are using words and data together, which we should, how you can connect those visually for your audience. And actually, one combination that we'll often do when we're doing makeovers in a workshop setting and trying to illustrate these sorts of strategies is we'll do both, where we animate the graph, building it piece by piece, in which case typically there aren't words on it outside of the slide title that maybe says the important point at the moment that we want to get across as we build the graph. And then we'll have a final version that would be annotated so that the person who's processing it on their own would be able to read those words, understand what data to connect them to, and get a similar sort of understanding as we would deliver in a live presentation. There is a blog post from a couple years back that Elizabeth wrote that is relevant to this. It's titled, How Many Words Should I Put on a Slide? And the short answer, of course, is it depends. It depends mainly on how you're communicating the information. But in the post, Elizabeth uses an example to illustrate how she'd approach it, both for the case where something's being sent around and also presented live. Make sure we put that in the show notes as well. Let's address one final question. I wrote about this one on our blog recently. How do I give a colleague unsolicited feedback? Don't. Or at least don't start there. And this is actually how I eventually responded to a question about feedback during a recent chart chat conversation with Jeff Schaefer, Steve Wexler, Andy Cotgrave, and Amanda McCulloch. I'll link to that in the show notes as well. When the topic was raised, my first thought was that you should start by asking your colleague if they're open to receiving feedback, which you could do, but can they really answer anything but the affirmative? It's a very leading question. And the primary problem is that it makes it so the feedback is on your terms, which can put your coworker unnecessarily on the defensive. You don't know if they just came out of a rough meeting, or maybe they're aware of others in earshot and might be embarrassed. They may not be at a point in their work that's ready for review, or there might be other factors that make the timing or the setting not right. In any case, this isn't an awesome scenario to try to help someone get better, which I'm assuming is the underlying goal. And if that's not the case, then you really shouldn't share the unsolicited feedback. Instead, do this. 
ask your colleague for feedback. And not just on anything and not just for show. Be sincere. Ask for their feedback on something important. Put yourself in the vulnerable position of feedback requester and receiver first. And when they give you feedback, you need to listen openly and act on it, incorporating it into your work. This models the behavior. It also brings the concept of feedback and the value of it to the top of others' minds. Then you can offer to be a feedback provider when it would be helpful. And that makes it so that when they ask, it's going to be on their terms, not yours. Also, as colleagues see your work improving as a result of that feedback that they share, they're going to be more likely to start asking for yours and others' feedback too. I can anticipate the, but what if questions that might be forming as I talk about this, but what if I'm the person's manager and part of my role is to give feedback? It still behooves you to be thoughtful about your approach. Make sure you make the critique about the work or the situation and not the individual. And take the time to discuss not just what you would suggest doing differently, but also why. Consider the setting that's going to be most appropriate given the scenario. If it's a quick change to something the team is working on, it might make sense to direct it when everyone's present. But if it's something more sensitive than that, you may want to discuss it in private. Do what you can to help ensure that the feedback is going to be effectively received. This makes it better not only for you, but more so for your employee. Another one of those but what ifs. But what if I already work in a place where critique is commonplace? If you're already in an environment where open, critical feedback is part of the norm, be very appreciative about that and recognize that both to say it and to truly mean it is rare. In that case, you can probably just go ahead and give the feedback, but you should certainly be asking your colleagues for it too. And I'll just mention on this topic that in my new book, Storytelling with You, the important role of feedback comes up at a number of different junctures. And that's because it can be useful to solicit input from others at various stages. For example, you might ask for feedback on your rough plan of attack, on draft slides and graphs, or on how you're delivering, how you're communicating the information. Consider how you can use others' input to make your own work stronger and when and how you can offer feedback in helpful ways to others. Whether children or colleagues, when you find yourself wanting to tell someone don't, I encourage you to go beyond that simple word. Explain why not and even better, help them understand what they might do instead. Before I wrap, a couple of quick updates. First off, it's been confirmed. My new book, Storytelling with You, Plan, Create, and Deliver a Stellar Presentation is shipping around the world. You can visit storytellingwithyou.com to download sample content and order your copy. It's also available as an ebook. If you already have yours and are loving it, that's great. And I welcome your review on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com, or Goodreads. Speaking of the new book, 
We had a couple of fantastic workshops and celebratory launch parties recently in Milwaukee and London. Thank you to everyone who took part. We plan to be back in person in 2023 with more workshops in the U.S. and beyond. If you'd like to take part, stay tuned for the 2023 calendar, which we'll be publishing in January. In the meantime, our final public storytelling with data workshop of the year is a virtual four-hour session that will take place on November 17th. That's 2022. Details and registration at storytellingwithdata.com slash workshops. You can use the code podcast10 at checkout for 10% off the registration price. That's podcast10. If you teach or would like to teach from Storytelling with Data books, we have a new resource for university instructors. Go to storytellingwithdata.com slash university to learn more and join some upcoming instructor-focused events. If you'd like to learn via video or would appreciate data visualization and presentation resources to share with colleagues, check out the Storytelling with Data YouTube channel. That's at storytellingwithdata.com slash YouTube. Subscribe to be notified of new episodes. Speaking of subscribing, if you like what you hear, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend. Thanks very much for tuning in.